Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Amos, we'll begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadon. I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Evin and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Ker, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But... I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire. If you would throw your ribbon in there, and then for introduction we'll go over to John's letter, the book of Revelation in chapter 17. I mentioned last week that a lot of times the devil isn't mentioned in the narratives that we look at in the Bible. Satan and his platoon, there may be no mention of them or his activity. But there clearly is always activity. If the kingdom of heaven is moving, which it always is, if the flags are always a-flying, which they always are, the activity of the evil one is always present. Of course, it's more subtle than any beast of the field. And sometimes in our day, it seems like it's less subtle and even more obvious. But we should be aware, even though there is not anything in the print or black and white, we would need to be aware as good combatants of what our enemy is up to. So I would like to draw connections because when we deal with prophecy, which the book of Amos is, we know through the record of other prophetical teachings that there's usually a near and a far fulfillment. There is a near, something that was fulfilled, something in 
Amos's day, a near and then a far fulfillment, something that is coming towards the crescendo of history, the end time, which we know of as the day of the Lord. And we see this multiple times. We see uh, multiple types uh, throughout the scripture, and then we even see them in the history in which we live, things that take place that certainly look like the same thing. Paul says the Old Testament was written for our example. So we have types, examples throughout history. And our eyes become more opened to them. If we look at Revelation 17, he's speaking of a particular enemy that is known of as in the female gender, a harlot. And he comes in, if we look in 17 verse 6, it says, John in his vision says, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. For our purpose in going through Amos, I don't want to spend too much time in particular on the woman herself, but on that beast that is carrying her. It says that this particular beast, it says, which hath seven heads and ten horns. John is just simply writing down what he saw in the vision at first. But if you jump over to verse 9, there is subtlety to it and a place for us to be thinking. Verse 9 says, and here is the mind which hath wisdom. He's explaining the vision. The seven heads are seven mountains. So we're looking at symbolism. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And if you just jump down to 12, it gives more explanation. It says, the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. And we're familiar with that throughout the scripture. Many times the horn is the power of the beast. It's the striking place. So a horn oftentimes is symbolized as a king or a monarch. It is this way here. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with this particular beast. Now, they're kings, they're monarchs, but it says they haven't received a kingdom as yet. So what he's referring to are simply very, very wealthy, powerful men. In the Bible, we're in Revelation 13, we already went through. Those men or these group of men are called a, a cabal, or the Bible calls it a beast. It's an organization loosely of very, very wealthy and powerful men. It calls them kings, but they haven't received a kingdom yet, which is interesting. But then notice that it says that these, these men, they have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. It's, it's interesting that it says they have one mind. Now, the beast, some of us have just been introduced to through Scripture uh, because we've had recently a coup d'etat in our country, and we've seen a lot of things happen within the past couple years, A, because of that coup d'etat, and also because of the plague that was sent to us via globalists and the CCP. Now, a lot of us have just had our eyes open to this. But this is not a new system. The devil has no new tricks. So we're looking at a beast of some sort, a group of men that are very, very wealthy, very, very powerful. And it says that these men have one mind. 
which immediately then the Spirit should bring to our remembrance of another time in the very beginning when another group of very wealthy men were of one mind. In fact, it says they were of one speech and of one language. The book of Genesis, back to the Tower of Babel. Now, when it says during the Tower of Babel, when it says they were of one language and one speech, it wasn't only referring to their language. When he says one language and one speech, what he was referring to is their, their unity of thought. They walked the same. They talked the same. They thought the same. They spoke the same. They had the same language, but they had the same, what the Bible calls a polis. We get the word metropolis. So people from New York talk the same way, and a lot of times they act the same way, and, and they have this kind of polis. It's the their method, their culture. So these men that he's talking about here that are very strong, king makers, very wealthy, powerful men, have one mind. There's a unity. We introduced you, and I gave it to you as homework last week, the word ecumenism, to be ecumenical. We are not ecumenical. We are against being ecumenical. But these men are. They have one mind, and they all get together, and it says they give their power and strength unto the beast. And then we have more clues of what they're up to in verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. They're in combat. There's many modes and different ways and forms, different fronts of combat, that these rich, powerful men are making war against God himself, the Lamb. Psychological warfare, sometimes physical warfare, throughout history, all the way back from, at least back to the Tower of Babel. So history repeats itself. The interesting part, though, is that I'd like to call our attention to now is because we're coming here to receive marching orders. We're not here to get our ears tickled. We're here to learn what we are to do as good soldiers of the cross. And if you look, it says, These shall make war with the Lamb, And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. But also notice, and they that are with him. That would be us. Now, focusing, he's making reference to his glorious return, and we will all return with them to take back the earth, to take the promised land back. But the war is constantly going on. The war has been since the Garden of Eden, all the way to 2021, and all the way till the very day when he does return. So notice there is combat. These people are making war against the Lamb, against Jesus the King, and he says, not only is he victorious, but it says, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's us. So those people who want to say that we ought to obey by way of Romans 13 are missing a whole lot of the Bible here. Because there is a war going on, and for all of us to sit on the sidelines uh, is, is not a biblical concept. They make war. Now, when he's referring to this, he's referring to Babylon in particular, Now, there are many Babylonian figures throughout history. We just mentioned back all the way to the Tower of Babel, from which Babylon and that philosophy stems from, at least in the beginnings of Scripture. But there are many figures. We have the Tower of Babel. We have the literal city of Babylonia, one of the seven wonders of the world with the hanging gardens. Nebuchadnezzar was king and many others. We also have Rome, ancient Rome at the time, what the New Testament would be 
Peter calls the city of Rome Babylon, even in Scripture. And then we also have many other forms of Babylonianish things. Babylonia, we have the papacy in Rome to this day is considered Babylon. There is no other more drunk with the blood of the saints than the papacy. Now, I'm not here to offend you, and I love you if you're Catholic, but history is history, and we don't revisit and we don't revise it. There have been many, many Babylons through the years. And if you look at, now I'm, uh, you guys know I'm a lover of the red, white, and blue, but we do resemble Babylon in many ways if you were to go to D.C. These wealthy men that he's talking about, the beasts who gives power and they receive their power from the serpent, make war against the lamb and we are his soldiers. If you jump down to chapter 18, he sees another vision. And it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. The leash has been taken off of the opposing army. It's just rampant. The city of Babylon has fallen. It's this great empire, and it's become a habitation of devils. It is anarchy. It is totally corrupt. And he says in 3, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, It's a global environment. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And then he says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. we got to find a way to build a parallel society, a parallel culture. You do know when you go to Walmart, you give your money to the enemy. Come out of her, my people. And then notice in 5, he says, 4, Her sins have reached unto heaven. The height of these sins now is at a a different height than ever before. Her sins now have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. God doesn't forget, but he's gracious. Sixth, notice, reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, And notice the next phrase, in the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. That's an interesting way of writing. Read that again, it's somewhat difficult. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. In other words, what he's saying is is there there is a, a cup of iniquity. Jesus drank the cup of sin at the cross. He drank the full cup of iniquity. He took the penalty of our sins. That is a common phrase throughout Scripture is a, a cup of iniquity. But David says, my cup runneth over. That is the cup of righteousness. But there is a cup of righteousness and there is a cup of iniquity. And he is referring to that now and he's saying that this particular cup of sin has reached capacity. There is a certain measure of iniquity that is beyond, once you get to this point, it's over. You cannot go back. Now, when he's talking of these things, he's talking nationally. This is a national situation. The country or the city 
is, has come to the point of sin, to the point where you are beyond the point of return. You, you cannot come back. Now that's not individually, because we all know that God's grace is amazing. And to the sinner, onto your dying deathbed, you have the opportunity for God to have mercy to the vilest offender. But nationally, it's not that way. The country can go beyond the point of return, which this one did. The cup was full. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 15, you wonder why the Israelites were in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. And then he tells you why. Because the geopolitical map wasn't ready to turn yet because he makes the statement, the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. Their cup of sin hadn't come to capacity yet and God in his mercy was allowing them to live while his people were suffering. Isn't that just like him? That God's people would suffer because we're trying to rescue those that are wrecked? Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Eventually God heard their cry and wiped them out. You do realize that Sodom and Gomorrah was mercy? Why did he burn Sodom and Gomorrah? Because it says that God heard their cry. We were just driving through Ohio City looking for my boy's house to, to live. And we came across an old school building. And on the front that had the, the gay flag. And it said a safe haven for, for, uh, to rescue. It was a place for people who are of the homosexual choice. Who are in such agony and pain that they need a safe house to come to. You don't hear that on the news. The suffering that they go through. The sin can come to a point of no return in a country or kingdom. It comes to the fullness. Another time sin reached its fullness. You might recall the phrase, the earth was filled with violence and their imagination was only evil continually. It reached a turning point and God flooded the earth. Now, about that, he made the covenant never to flood the earth again. I will never destroy the earth with a flood. But the covenant remains true. He will not flood it. The next time he will burn it. Peter tells us that the elements shall melt with fervent heat, that there is going to be a fire on the earth to cleanse the entire planet of sin. That explains the next verse. Therefore shall her plagues Come in one day. And when he says one day there, he doesn't mean one day because if you, it, it, when the Bible makes perfect sense, seek no other sense. Because he's also talking about a famine. It's impossible to have a famine in one day. What he's referring to is one package of days, one day, one unit, a singular time. He's talking of the trib. There will be famine. In those days, there will be plagues. And they're freaking out over one coronavirus that everybody lives. 99.99999% of everybody lives and they're panicking. What are they going to do when you have 10 plagues that come that have 50% mortality? Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Death and mourning and famine. And look what will happen. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. You ever wonder why when God sent in the, the people, Joshua, that he said to Joshua, all right, you and the armies, 
kill everything that you see. Man, woman, and child, beast, and everything. I want you to go in there in a Joshua-style slaughter. Go into the promised land and slaughter everyone, everything. Why? Is God just a butcher? It's because he knows that the enemy will not go quietly. You have to wipe them out in order for them to get the promised land. When God comes back to take the entire globe, the promised land, the the cabal will not go easy and not go quietly. So he's going to send a fire. Now, with that then, we can make our way into Amos and find out what's happening here. Because again, the prophecy has a near and far fulfillment. It's, it's not just uh, dealing with 787 B.C. He's referring to our day as well, and all days in between. So when we, when we deal with this, it says, The words of Amos, which was among the herdmen, he takes a cowboy, a very uh, probably a relatively uh, lower class, uh, Tekoa uh, citizen, and he uses him, and it says, It's in the days of Uzziah, of Judah the king, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel. So he gives us the time period of when this is taking place and then he says the Lord will roar from Zion. He's like the the lion of the tribe of Judah who is very upset and will roar and it says utter his voice from Jerusalem. The inhabitations of the shepherds shall mourn. So it's definitely not a, a, a positive roar and it says from the top of Carmel shall wither. And then he goes on to say things that are as you read through chapter 1 and into chapter 2, you immediately find a, a repeated phrase that goes on and on. So when the Bible repeats itself, we are to take note. So he says in 3, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. He's referring to an event of the current day then, or just recent of the past, where the people of Damascus were gutting human beings like deer. They were dismembering them. They threshed them with threshing instruments of iron. The brutality, the gore. God says... For three transgressions and for four, you did that, and I didn't forget. So I will send a fire. Verse four, but I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which shall devour the land. No, specifically the palaces. We're talking of specific people in power people who are rich, people who live on the, in the palaces on the wall. This is not the common folk that he's dealing with. He's dealing with those who are responsible. Verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Human trafficking. They're involved heavily in human trafficking. And they also know, because if you notice through this passage, Edom is repeated a few times. Because Edom was very eager to purchase slaves because they made a sport out of abusing them to death. See, in America, we're a gospel nation. 
We are very sheltered of the evil that has been rampant through the years. We don't have coliseums that we go. We have a coliseum downtown where they play basketball and fool around. In, in the days of Rome, the coliseum, they fed Christians to the lions. It was gory. They dismembered. We're sheltered from this because of the gospel. And it's getting worse. And don't think it can happen here. The child trafficking. The biggest day for us for child trafficking is the Super Bowl. Why? Because there's very powerful, rich men that gather and pay big money to go to the big day, to the big game for the big day of the year. God says, well, for three transgressions and for four, for, for human trafficking, I will send a fire. But I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour what? The palaces, the rich people, who are as corrupt and as evil as can be. Again, down in verse 9, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. Again, knowing the horrible abuses that Edom would do through human trafficking. But I'm going to send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour what? The palaces. Verse 11, it goes on, For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually and has kept his wrath forever. The violent anger was the, to the point of insanity. We're dealing now with, with this, the psychosis of a serial killer. They are so angry and so upset that they have developed a psychotic way of thinking, that of a a serial killer. God says, well, I'm going to send a fire. And then I can go on. I mean, verse 13, look at it again. For three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have ripped up the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. They are dissecting children from the womb with a knife. They just cut open her belly and gut her and pull out her the fetus, pull out the child. You say to myself, wait a minute, I thought we were coming to church to have some kind of good encouraging words and maybe some laughs and some music and, and talk about the love of Jesus and go home. <laughs> Not in biblical Christianity. That doesn't happen all often. Because there's more than Jesus. There is the enemy. We have an uncontrollable, untethered anger that is happening. It's diabolical. What we are seeing are the hoof prints of the beast. Doesn't say anything about the devil in these passages, does it? It doesn't talk about uh, the demons that are around. But what we are, if you are born again, you can see the kingdom of heaven. And what he's doing is, is the people who are not born again don't see it at all in here. But we who are, we see the hoofprints of the devil, the beast in the palaces, the very, very rich men, powerful men in power are showing their head. He goes on again, chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab and for four. What, you, know, you know what God is saying there when he says for three transgressions and for four? You know what he's saying in our vernacular? Enough is enough. I have had enough. 
what we're doing is we're seeing the whole overarching prophecy all the way to the day of the end times when Babylon the Great will be gone. There's one thing that I forgot when we were in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll just read it for you. And it's best to use your, the eye of your imagination. When we were in Revelation, he says something concerning Babylon. Now, now I need you to, to think with your eyes now and with your mind. He says this verse, And saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. What do you see? Use your imagination. What do you see? I'll read it again. Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. What do you see? This is not folklore or allegory. This is real. What, what do you see? What is the city? What is the skyline in your mind when you look out over the city and you see the skyline and all the things that it's expressed? What, are we, what do you see? Because the point that he is saying is, is I've had enough and there will be a fire. Second Peter says the end times, the elements will melt with fervent heat. The lithos, the, the, the whole outer crust of the earth will be burned and purified. While we're gone, celebrating the marriage lamb, the feast. And as we get to this point, you know what people are saying that are listening to Amos? As he preaches these messages? Great. We love it. Because so far, everybody he's referred to are the heathen. You give it to them, Amos. Fire and brimstone. Them rotten, filthy sinners. Give it to them. Till we get to verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, that's God's people, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have kept not his commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. And I will send a fire. That is so sad. And you would say, wait a minute. We're learning the book of Amos. We know that this took place under King Uzziah of Judah. What was happening in those days? Prosperity. I mean, they were having an economic boom at the time. Everything was going great. But God is saying, actually, danger is at the door. Because you have made void the, the word of the Lord and the law of the Lord, even in your prosperity. And you would think, wait a minute, wait a minute, how did it get that way then? How did we get from being completely successful with the greatest GDP, with the greatest country in the world, we're talking of God's people themselves, to a fire? To the point of no return? How did it get that way? Because this is what we need to know. Because brothers, we're here. I mean, this is us. We are in the most wealthy country in the world. We are the most gospel-preaching nation in the world. We technically, in global speaking, leaving Israel aside because they have given a, a spirit of slumber, they don't know Jesus yet. As the geopolitical turn goes, we are it. And if it can happen to Judah, so what do we who fight 
with those who fight the lamb do? How do we have to know? Throw your ribbon in here and go back again. And I, and I brought your attention to it a little bit. We didn't have time last week when we were in Second Chronicles 26. But there are clues to what happens here. Keep in mind, when you heard the, the verse from Revelation, Alas, alas, the city adorned with great pearls and gold and purple and scarlet. What do you see? Look in Chronicles 26. We dealt with this a little bit. So Uzziah comes to the throne as a young man at 16. You know what the first thing that he did? Verse 2, he built Eloth. He built a city. Sounds innocent. If you jump down to verse 6, and he went forth and warred against the Philistines and break down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And what did he do? He built cities. Sounds innocent. And, was it, and, and technically is innocent. Go down to verse 8. And the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah. And his name spread abroad even to the entering of Egypt, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. He was becoming the superpower of the world, so much so, look what he does. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. He was the big dollar developer of the city. Ever ask yourself, why do the big cities, why are they just full of madness? I mean, they're madness. New York City, right now, is full of madness. They're arresting veterans who fought for freedom because he didn't have a passport to get in to get a, a, a BLT. Madness! They're firing the heroes, the healthcare workers who are heroes and frontline brothers. I mean, they're absolute heroes. Unless you don't get the shot, then fire them. It's madness. L.A. It's absolute madness. I mean, the downtown city of L.A. is, is madness. I mean, New York now has a new law that uh, murder is not a felony. It's madness. Chicago, another big city. I mean, there's more murders there all the time. BLM has nothing to say about all the black people that are shot every weekend in Chicago. It's absolute madness. You've got to say to yourself, wait a minute, why is that madness? Why are all the cities loaded with madness? Even as we were looking for the house, you go down into the city and you'd be surprised how many rainbow flags there are. What's the matter with you? Let me tell you what's happening. When Israel was freed from Egypt, they became nomads. They lived in tents. They traveled around and wandered around in the desert. They were nomads. When you're a nomad, you're a hard-working person because that's the only way you could be to survive as a nomad is you had to work hard all day long for your food. Nobody got wealthy. Everybody that was a nomad was basically middle class. I mean, you might have had a little bit of uh, fluxing going on, but pretty much everybody is middle class who's a nomad. You travel around, you live in tents, you live off the land. Then what happened in the history is, is they get the promised land. They're no longer nomads. They get a step up and they become farmers. The culture of Israel and Judah have turned from nomads to now farmers. And when you think of farmers, they're hardworking, middle-class people, most of them. 
They own family farms, so most of your family stays in a tribal style of living where everybody knows everybody in town. It's the family. Everyone pretty much is middle class. I mean, there are some poor people because they're lazy and they don't want to sow seed in the spring, but for the most part, everybody is just about middle class, hardworking people. They live off the land. Now, you have some that are getting a little more wealthy than others, but for the most part, the farmers aren't known as extraordinarily wealthy. And then what happens is we begin to build cities. Culture has gone from nomadic to farming and agriculture to cities. What did he do in his prosperity? He built cities. And what he is doing is is he is building madness. He doesn't know it. But he's building madness. The culture is changing. People are beginning to get rich. And you know what happens when you have people who are not spirit-filled, who are rich? For the love of money is the root of all evil. When a person gets rich, they hire people who are poor. So I can make $55 an hour fixing a car, because that's what the insurance pays. But I can hire some jack. Pay him 12 bucks an hour. In fact, I'll hire five jacks and pay them 10 bucks an hour. And I get rich and they stay poor. And the rich get richer and the poor stay poor. And on it goes. And you know what happens? I think it's a proverb that says, Lord, don't make me so rich that I forget you. But don't make me so poor that I steal. The rich got rich, and the poor got poorer, and they begin to steal and to kill at the bottom of the barrel. And the top of the barrel becomes Clintonian, and they start killing too. And the corruption and the money and the greed is there. The law of the Lord, we don't need it. I got the money, and I got the power. Slave labor takes place. Oppression takes place. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. God hates oppression. He hates it. So when we come back to Amos and make our clothes, we have the explanation. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. But verse 5, I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Verse 6, for thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, God's people, and for four, enough is enough, enough is enough. I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because look what they did. They sold the righteous for silver. And worse, they sold the poor for a pair of shoes. They were in prosperity, but you know what they gained? Greed, lust, and envy. You want to know what they lost? Love, mercy, and grace. That brought the whole country down. And it brought it down in the midst of of prosperity. 
How do you do combat with something like that? Generosity. Don't tax me to redistribute the wealth. We as Christians are the most generous people. We just give it away. Because he who was rich became poor so that he that was poor could become rich. He who is forgiven much, which was me and you, he who is forgiven much loves much. Are you a sinner? You are a sinner. And I'm a sinner. But we have a wonderful Redeemer. We were on the slave block for child trafficking. The devil had our soul. And he came and bought it. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own any longer. If the country that we live in is going to be saved, it's going to be by the Redeemer through the chosen, the called, and the faithful. Say you. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.